0: Hey, it's Dan. I'm excited to tell you about a virtual event we're hosting on March 24th. Healing at Home, Pandemic Lessons in the Future of Home Care is a look at the explosion in home-based care programs that started during the pandemic and what that tells us about the future of this style of care. We'll hear from researchers, insurers, and patients, and we want to hear from you too. Register now to join us for this free event at tradeoffs.org slash events. When someone is incarcerated... Jails and prisons must provide them with medical care. But when a person gets out, all that goes away. Left to fend for themselves, many fall through the cracks.
1: People lose their care, they lose their medications, and they get sick. They go to the hospital, and too often they die.
0: But now, for the first time, the federal government has opened the door to a solution that's been forbidden. Paying for Medicaid coverage before people leave jail or prison. Today, why states from deep blue California to solidly red Utah want to bring Medicaid behind bars and the tough policy choices states are facing. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. After more than 20 years, Lee Reed was a free man.
2: It's a good feeling, but you don't know what to feel because you don't know what to expect It's going to be coming around the corner next.
0: It was a warm, sunny day in California's Central Valley at the end of July 2022. Lee was just a few days shy of his 62nd birthday, dressed in a clean white t-shirt, gray sweatpants, and white tennis shoes. Hunched over his walker, Lee shuffled to the prison's front gate and got in a white van that would take him to the next phase of his life.
2: We're in the van, and reality sets in. and fear sets in. My mama died. My wife died. I didn't know where my son was. I had no place to go. I was really lost.
0: Everything Lee owned in the world sat next to him in the van: two hundred dollars cash, his walker, his release paperwork, and two plastic bags filled with a month's worth of medication pills for his diabetes, high blood pressure, and agonizing chronic back pain.
2: Imagine somebody standing on your foot and you can't stop that pain. And they're just going to stand there. They're not going to get up off of it. It's going to be there when you wake up. It's going to be there when you go to sleep. Half the time, I never even got out of the bed while I was in prison because I couldn't stand up. It was so painful.
0: Lee's doctors in prison told him he needed back surgery, but because he was so close to his release date, he'd have to get it done on the outside. Finding a way to get that surgery and work again was Lee's top goal as he left the van and got on a train for the six hour trip to San Francisco.
2: I'm a country boy, I don't I don't expect much. You know what I'm saying? Just you just put the meat and potatoes on the table and I can go to work. That's all I want to do.
0: Lee prides himself on his work. As a kid, he picked cotton with his mom and grandma in Arkansas. After moving to San Francisco, he spent decades as a carpenter, landscaper, teamster, and pipe layer. Doing anything like that was impossible as he stepped off the train in San Francisco, stooped over his walker. With nowhere to go, Lee ended up downtown looking for a place to sleep.
2: One of them big high-rise buildings. It was a parking lot garage that had uh, the stairs going down and that's where I slept, on the stairs, me and the walker.
0: Lee had finally left behind decades of prison life, but to what? He was homeless, no one to help him. The thing he could rely on was his constant shooting pain. Resting on the concrete steps, Lee felt defeated. It broke me. In many ways, Lee's story mirrors the experience of many of the roughly 600,000 people who are released from prison every year. Data show people who are incarcerated have higher rates of chronic medical issues like hypertension and diabetes and significantly higher rates of serious mental illness. They're also much more likely to struggle with addiction. Those health needs often make the transition out of incarceration treacherous.
1: The studies show that people who are returning from incarceration are at very high risk of death upon
0: release. Shira Shavit is a primary care physician at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also the executive director of the Transitions Clinic Network, which specializes in caring for people post-incarceration. Shira points to an often cited study from Washington State that found in the two weeks after leaving prison, People were 12 times more likely to die than the general population.
1: Things like drug overdose, cardiovascular disease, suicide, and cancer.
0: Drug overdose is the biggest danger. A more recent study in North Carolina found people were 40 times more likely to die of an overdose in those first two weeks post-release. Former prisoners who do survive are much more likely to end up in the hospital or emergency room. Shira says that's what happens when someone goes from relying on a jail or prison for their health care needs to having to figure it out on their own. There's a major
1: disruption in coverage of care, and so that disruption leads people to becoming sicker and potentially dying in the community.
0: More than a dozen states and some members of Congress want to smooth that transition by connecting folks to healthcare more quickly. But until now, states have been barred from using federal Medicaid dollars to cover people who are incarcerated. It's called the Inmate Exclusion Policy, and it was written into the statute to keep the federal government from footing the bill for health care behind bars. Many counties and states try to connect people to Medicaid as soon as they're released, but it can be a bureaucratic nightmare. And even if it does work, people often have other priorities.
1: You know, where you're going to live and how you're going to get food, those basic needs sometimes take precedence over the medical needs, and sometimes people's medical needs get put on the bat burner.
0: Competing needs are one reason policymakers have reconsidered the inmate exclusion policy. In 2018, Congress directed federal health officials to help states figure out a better transition plan. Since then, 15 states have asked Washington to let them turn Medicaid on before people leave jail, prison, and juvenile facilities. And last month, California became the first to get the green light. This all came too late for Lee Reed. Lee was on his own that first night he left prison. He slept in a parking garage stairwell, his walker for a blanket, his back pain for company. After his second night, Lee found his way to a nearby shelter. That's where, a few weeks later, he met with a doctor who restarted Lee on all of his medications and referred him to a specialist who scheduled his back surgery.
2: Everything just started coming together slowly, slowly, slowly.
0: Too slowly, in many ways. The specialist scheduled the operation for early 2023, more than six months after Lee had been released.
2: I'm in agony every day. You can't stand up, you can't sit down, you can't lay down. Wherever you're at, you're in pain.
0: And his pain was getting worse. Bad enough that he was in and out of the ER more than once a month and it was weighing on him mentally.
2: It's just tearing me apart, and I don't know what to do, so I just pray and just hold on, you know.
0: The pain, the waiting, the poverty, the loneliness. Lee questioned whether he wanted to be alive.
2: Who would want to live this? This is horrible, man, I'm I'm at the bottom. I, I can't do anything to protect myself. I can't do anything to feed myself. How the hell am I,
0: In November, nearly four months after he'd gotten out of prison, the doctor of the shelter referred Lee to Shira Shavit at the Transitions Program, hoping she could better manage his pain. The minute he walked into the exam room at a San Francisco Department of Public Health clinic, Shira could see the toll that not getting care had taken on her new patient.
1: He was visibly in pain. Just getting on the exam table was really challenging, and it was hard for him to focus, and the pain was really wearing him down. He was feeling really hopeless about the future.
0: Even after nearly two decades of caring for people coming out of prison, Lee's pain made an impression on Shira. She sat with Lee for an hour, examining him, taking stock of his various needs. She prescribed a medication patch for his back, scheduled follow-up appointments for his diabetes the clinic also gave him a bag of groceries a bus card and ordered him a winter coat
1: when people come out of prison they have so many needs you know really this is just trying to bring people to the starting line to kind of get them to where they need to be to then even start to be able to become successful in the community
0: policymakers know there are a lot of people like Lee coming out of incarceration suffering as they wait for care, and they hope that turning Medicaid on before people are released will make a difference. But to do that, states have to make some tough choices. We'll dig into those after the break.
3: Where's the strangest place you've lost your car keys? Inside the refrigerator, the washer or dryer, the trunk of your car, the kitty litter box. Well, good news, because even if you've lost your keys on the moon, you can still unlock your car and get where you're going with available digital key in the 2023 all-new Kia Niro EV. Farther for all. To learn more, visit kia.com/niroev today. Kia, movement that inspires.
1: What can't be CRISPRed?
4: Does big science have a bullying problem? And how many times can we talk about Biogen before listeners begin to riot?
1: Tune in to Stats Weekly Biotech podcast, The Read Out Loud, and find out. I'm Meg Terrell.
4: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Carden.
1: Each week, we discuss the latest news and urgent gossip of biotech and the life sciences.
4: We interview experts like Jennifer Doudna, Ashish Jha, and Scott Gottlieb on his favorite barbecue safety tips. We release episodes every Thursday. See you next week.
0: Welcome back. For the first time ever, the federal government is allowing some people in jails, prisons, and juvenile facilities to get Medicaid coverage. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, approved California's request for this in January, and 14 other states are also hoping to get approval. All these proposals share one goal, to bridge care between incarceration and the community for the more than 10 million people who leave jail and prison each year. Many also see this policy as a way to improve health equity as people of color are disproportionately incarcerated in the U.S. That said, trade-offs producer Ryan Levy is more interested in how these proposals are different than similar. Ryan, how's it going? Thanks for being here. Doing well, Dan. So why focus
4: on the differences? Well, this is brand new territory for Medicaid, Dan, so there are a lot of choices that states have to make without a lot of guidance or evidence. And as a result, we've seen states go in really different directions, which reflect different priorities, and that could end up having major implications for the people that states are hoping to help.
0: You say there's not a lot of evidence or data here, so what do we know? Well, states that
4: connect folks to insurers prior to release have seen more people get care more quickly. And there have been a few pilot programs in California and New Mexico that showed offering care coordination to people before they left jail led to more primary care visits, less recidivism, and fewer ER trips. So it's something, but hardly definitive, in helping answer some of the major questions that states are going to have to wrestle with.
0: Major questions like what?
4: After talking to officials in a bunch of these states, Dan, I think there are three big ones worth walking through. Who to cover, what to cover, and when to start covering it.
0: You're talking about which people in jail and prison would get this new coverage, what services they'd actually get, and when those services would start. Let's take these one by one, starting with who. What makes this such a tough question for states to answer, Ryan? Ryan?
4: It's the classic Medicaid conundrum, Dan. You know, the more people you cover, the more it's going to cost states. Now, the theory behind getting people connected to care sooner, keeping them on their meds, is that states will save money over time because fewer people will end up needing expensive hospital and ER visits. But because, again, this is all brand new, states are having to basically guess at whose health will benefit most and, by extension, where their Medicaid dollars will do the most good.
0: Okay. Since California has gotten its proposal approved, let's talk about who they've decided to cover to start this off.
4: Sure. So California's policy will cover incarcerated people with conditions like substance use issues and chronic mental and physical health problems. J.C. Cooper, the state's Medicaid director, told me they're focused on the folks they see as most vulnerable.
1: We really try to zero in on those with health conditions because that is essentially our intersection with this, right? Right. If you are providing and paying for the Medicaid services, you want to ensure that you are focused on those that truly need it.
4: And this is the most common answer, Dan, that I got to the who to cover question. Folks with significant documented health needs. Now, of course, in prisons and jails, this is actually a pretty big group. You know, JC estimates around 70 percent of people incarcerated in California fit this criteria.
0: So if that was the most common answer, what are some
4: of the outliers? Well, on one side, you've got a state like West Virginia, which is only looking to cover people with substance use disorder. Cindy Bean, who runs West Virginia's Medicaid program, told me that her state's been hit really hard by the opioid crisis. So it feels personal.
1: We've all had friends that unfortunately have lost that battle and have died. And so... Those are the individuals that we feel that we could really make a huge impact on having this service available prior to release.
4: The best evidence we have really backs Cindy up here, Dan. There are treatments specifically for opioid use that are proven to reduce overdose deaths. And the limited data we have suggests overdose is the most common way that people die after leaving prison.
0: Got it. So if Medicaid coverage could even put a dent in those overdose deaths, that could potentially save a lot of lives just focusing in on this one group.
4: Exactly. But then on the other side, you have a state like Rhode Island that wants to cover everyone.
1: The odds are so high that people in that situation are going to need the support that it didn't seem to make sense to us to be trying to distinguish who did and who did not meet some threshold or have a particular condition.
4: Amy Katzen is the Director of Policy and Strategy for Rhode Island Medicaid. And basically, she says that so many people who are incarcerated have really serious health needs that it's simpler to just offer this to all of them.
1: Have you moved and tried to find a new PCP? Is that a fun experience? It's so frustrating and hard. And that's like not as stressful a situation. So anytime you can reduce the barriers for someone getting into care, that's going to have benefits down the line.
0: So Ryan, it sounds like this question comes down to who states think is sick enough to make it worth spending finite Medicaid dollars on. And without much evidence to guide them, some states are casting a really wide net while others are going much more narrow. So let's move on to what services states are willing to pay for before someone is released. What's the core tension here, Ryan?
4: Part of it, Dan, is the same as the last question, right? More services means more help, more care, but also more money. But interestingly, the bigger motivation I heard from state officials was around simplicity.
0: What does simplicity mean?
4: Well, everyone kept telling me how complicated it's going to be to turn Medicaid on, right? You've got to get the criminal justice system and the healthcare system to work together, to integrate, to share data. Dan, it's going to be a huge lift. So policymakers want to make this as easy as possible. And for someone like Mike Levine, the director of Massachusetts Medicaid program MassHealth, that means incarcerated people who qualify for Medicaid in his state will have access to the same services as any other person on Medicaid. This is going to be so complicated to implement when we finally do. There's something to be said for just if you are a MassHealth member, you're getting the MassHealth benefit. That feels like the simplest way to do this for them. But in Arizona, they're thinking about simplicity differently. Dana Flannery, a former senior policy advisor for Arizona's Medicaid program, says her state wants to offer a much more limited set of services, Dan, that's really laser focused on transitioning someone back into the community.
1: We're not trying to take over all the health care by any means. This is literally a warm handoff.
4: So Arizona is only looking to cover things like connecting a person to new doctors, making sure they can get their prescriptions filled, and helping them find housing, while the jails and prisons would continue to provide and pay for things like addiction treatment and medications in the lead-up to someone's release. And now, I should be clear, Dan— Every state I talked to said they are just focused on the transition, not trying to overhaul the whole corrections healthcare system.
0: Based on these two examples, it sounds like states have some pretty different definitions of what transition looks like.
4: I think that's right, Dan. You know, if you're Massachusetts, all of the health care that a person gets in the weeks leading up to their release is related to their transition. And then in Arizona, they're more interested in isolating the services that are specifically about setting up someone's care post-release.
0: OK, let's move on to our final big question that you laid out, Ryan. When should states turn Medicaid on in jails and prisons?
4: Right. So this question really comes down to how much time states think they need to set someone up for success on the outside. So most states picked 30 days pre-release, but California actually got approved for 90. And they believe that's a more realistic window to build a trusting clinical relationship, make sure someone has all their appointments set up and, you know, just really get them everything that they need.
0: Thanks for laying out some of the differing philosophies and policy priorities, Ryan. It's helpful. I do have to wonder, though, given that CMS has already given California the thumbs up for how they're answering these three big questions, how likely do you think it is that the agency is just going to steer states to copy California?
4: It's a good question, Dan. You know, it took over a year for CMS to approve California's request. So if a state wants to avoid waiting that long, you know, just copying California's answers may be the quickest option. Um, but after reading through all 15 of these applications and talking with a lot of the people who helped write them, my bet is that these other states will want to pursue their own path.
0: And that could actually be good, right? Like, we've talked about how little evidence there is, and so letting states experiment here could help us learn what works best. It's that whole states as laboratories of democracy thing.
4: That's absolutely right.
0: There's also the question of whether there could be a disconnect between the Medicaid officials designing the policy and the people it's designed to help. I know you've spoken with some of those folks who've actually been incarcerated about what they think it's going to take to make this all work. Ryan, what have you learned?
4: Sure. So one person I talked with is Khalil Cumberbatch.
3: And I am the director of strategic partnerships at the Council on Criminal Justice, a non for profit policy think tank organization. Khalil
4: spent six and a half years in a New York prison before getting out and becoming an advocate. And Khalil says that healthcare behind bars is often insufficient, you know, something that numerous reports and court cases backs up.
3: I've seen people wither away, literally people who were 280 pounds, solid, healthy looking individual wither all the way down to skin and bones. And that was because something that they had was diagnosed late or was misdiagnosed in the beginning.
4: From his perspective, states focusing just on the transition misses the broader need.
3: The ultimate goal should be to have Medicaid cover the cost of services given to a person medically, substance abuse treatment, mental illness, and other services for the entire duration of a person's incarceration.
0: It seems like what Khalil's talking about obviously goes much further than where states are at right now. And so given that... What does he think should be state's top priority if they're just going to really focus on helping people in the transition phase? He thinks that
4: California has the right idea, you know, helping people who have clear, documented health needs. They're the ones that need this the most, he says.
0: And, And what about when states should turn Medicaid on? Like, how long does he think it'll take to help someone transition? He says
4: California's 90 days is a good start, but he would set the standard at 180 days or six months. I think Khalil's takeaway here, Dan, is that offering Medicaid in jails and prisons is good. But how states do it also really matters. You know, the people inside need to engage. And so getting advice from Khalil and others who've been incarcerated could make a meaningful difference in making sure that happens.
0: Before I let you go, Ryan, I've got to ask, what could go wrong here? Did the state officials you talked to share any concerns about bringing Medicaid behind bars? They did not,
3: Dan. I'm not really seeing downsides at this time. It's just all around good. I
4: don't see a lot of downsides.
3: I mean, I think it's good policy.
4: Everyone talked about how challenging it's going to be to implement this policy, right? But on the policy itself, all the state officials were very rosy.
0: Okay, no real surprise, I suppose, from the people who are actually backing this. But health policy, as you know, always seems to have these unintended consequences. What could some of those be with this?
4: Well, one concern I heard is that if these services are offered in jail and prison, it could actually encourage judges to incarcerate people so that they can get access to them. Another is whether turning Medicaid on inside could actually make prisoners less likely to engage because they might see Medicaid as part of a criminal justice system that they don't trust. And finally, you know, CMS has some concerns that this could allow jails and prisons to offload their healthcare costs onto Washington, so federal officials actually included some protections against that in its approval for California.
0: And what about straight up opposition to this, Ryan? Does anyone just think this is a bad policy outright?
4: Uh, Honestly, I struggled to find anyone saying that, Dan. Obviously, some policymakers have historically bristled at the idea of giving additional services to people in jail and prison, and this won't be cheap, I should say. You know, California expects to spend $318 million a year on these new services, plus another half a billion to help corrections facilities and healthcare providers build up the tech and infrastructure they'll need to make it all work. But as far as I can tell, no one is loudly opposing this.
0: Trade Off's producer Ryan Levy, thank you, as always, for your reporting. Anytime, Dan. At the end of January, the day after CMS approved California's request to bring Medicaid into jails and prisons, and about six months after Lee got into that van, Lee finally had his back surgery. We caught up with him over the phone.
2: I'm feeling beautiful right now. I actually can get up and walk around.
0: A week after his procedure, Lee felt better and eager to get back to Arkansas.
2: I want to go someplace nice and calm and green. I need to go find me a porch to sit on and, and so I can play with my grandchildren.
0: He says if someone had reached out to him before he left prison, if he had gotten his surgery sooner, there's a better chance he'd be supporting himself by now but now that he is in less pain it's easier he says to see how far he is from that starting line sher Shavit talked about he's still homeless without a job and struggling to find purpose
2: I'm trying to keep a positive attitude on everything because you know my whole world feels like it's falling apart I have no control over my own life right now just
0: like a uh, child. I'm just helpless. So Lee says he's doing better, but still on the edge. A reminder that as important as healthcare can be, sometimes it's not enough. I'm Dan Gorenstein.
5: This is Trade-Off. Later this year, the Supreme Court will decide whether to close a legal pathway that Medicaid recipients have used for more than 50 years.
3: I can't overstate how big of a deal legal experts think this would be. It would leave these programs really standing out there
1: without an enforcement, true enforcement mechanism.
5: We dive into the case that's calling this precedent into question next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Trade-Offs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on your podcasting app of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or NPR One. The Trade-Offs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer... Leslie Walker. The trade-offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks this week to Lindsey Browning, Brad Daw, Morgan Gleedman, Aeneas Ophelia Lino, Jason McGill, John Sawyer, Scott Taberner, and Vicky Wachino. Additional thanks to Kathleen Allison, Ingrid Binswanger, Blair Bryant, Dan Dimizio. Roberta Myers Douglas, Madeline Guth, Lisa Heinz, Bruce Herdman, Elizabeth Hinton, Clemens Hong, Kevin Kempf, Jennifer Lav, MacPack, Pack, Hannah Manyatis, Terry McDonald, Dan Mistak, Robin Rudowitz, Don Spector, Kim Sperber, Seon Thialoli Pavin, Diana Tosh, John Wetzel, and Tyler Winkleman. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Mark Jacobstein, Laura Lane, and Lisa Kumas. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders.
3: Where's the strangest place you've lost your car keys? Inside the refrigerator, the washer or dryer, the trunk of your car, the kitty litter box. Well, good news, because even if you've lost your keys on the moon, you can still unlock your car and get where you're going with available digital key in the 2023 all-new Kia Niro EV. Farther for all. To learn more, visit kia.com/niroev today. Kia, movement that inspires.